Friends, welcome to the second ever edition of Corbett Report Radio with your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. We're coming to you again this evening via the auspices of the Republic Broadcasting Network and broadcasting out on uh, KHFX 1140 AM in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So a special welcome to all of the Dallas-Fort Worth listeners and to all the listeners all around the globe who are listening to my voice either as I'm speaking or in the future in the archives, thank you for deciding to invest your time with alternative media that seeks to broaden your horizons rather than limit your perspective. So a welcome to one and all to tonight's conversation, and a conversation it will be, because coming up very shortly, we're going to be talking to Joshua Blakeney of Josh, joshuablakeney.info, and I'll give you some more info on who Joshua is and his background in a little while. But first, let me introduce the subject of tonight's conversation, uh, because it's a subject that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is skepticism. This is near and dear to my heart because, in fact, I consider myself to be a skeptic, or at least the dictionary definition of a skeptic, which is either, one, a person who questions the validity or authenticity of something purporting to be factual, or two, a person who maintains a doubting attitude as towards values, plans, statements, or the character of others. I think that somewhat encapsulates what I mean by skepticism, but perhaps an even more to-the-point uh, definition comes from Miguel de Unamuno, who not only can I not pronounce his name, but I know almost nothing about him other than this excellent quote quotation about skepticism. The skeptic does not mean him who doubts, but him who investigates or researches, as opposed to him who asserts and thinks that he has found. Let me read that again, because I think it's extremely important to get this definition of skepticism down, and I think this is an excellent encapsulation of the idea. The skeptic does not mean him who doubts, but him who investigates or researches, as opposed to him who asserts and thinks that he has found. Now, if that is your definition of skeptic, then sign me up, because that's exactly what I mean by the term. However, people have probably noticed in recent years the term skeptic has started to be turned toward a very different form of political analysis, and it's been spearheaded by people like James Randi and others of that ilk, and I have nothing against a lot of these people in their investigations of paranormal phenomena and many of the other things that they like to talk about, spoon-bending and things like that. I think it's quite valuable for them to, to be exposing the various tricks that are used to get people to believe things that are, well, worthy of doubting, shall we say. And once again, it's not to say that skeptics necessarily believe that something is not so. It's just that they do not necessarily believe that something has proven been proven to be so. So I think a true skeptic is open to being proven wrong at all times and in all regards. And once again, I consider myself very much in that vein of skepticism. But someone who is not, I think, demonstrably not in that vein, at least when it comes to political analysis, is Michael Shermer. And I'm sure he's someone that a lot of the listeners out there have encountered before. Michael Shermer is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, and that can be found at skeptic.com. 
And I think it's safe to say in this day and age, if you own the domain name for a word, you in a very real sense control the definition of that word. And in this case, I think that's not to the, to the betterment of the word itself or the term. And I'll explain that a little bit, simply because Michael Shermer is a skeptic in name only, I think, when it comes to political conspiracies, or conspiracies as he likes to turn them. So when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Shermer and introduce our tonight's guest, Joshua Blakeney. Welcome back, folks, to Corbett Report Radio here on Republic Broadcasting with your host, James Corbett. And tonight we are talking about skepticism, not skepticism itself, but the skeptical, skeptical movement as personified by people like Michael Shermer, the publisher of Skeptic Magazine at Skeptic.com, who I think is decidedly unskeptical about government pronouncements when it comes to political, politically sensitive topics. And there are a number of uh, examples of this, egregious examples uh, from Shermer over the years. Someone who lectures at great length and in great detail about the various types of logical fallacies that are employed by people who do not know what they're talking about or are trying to mislead people. And yet those very same logical fallacies he employs in spades when he is talking about political research and there are many, many, many examples of this online. One that I will direct the listener's attention to was published in Huffington Post in December of 2010. It ran under the headline, My Day in Dealey Plaza, Why JFK Was Killed by a Lone Assassin. And uh, Shermer, I think, makes an absolute fool of himself in this article. And I think anyone who has even a passing famil familiarity with the JFK, well, boondoggle, one would say, uh, it would see in a moment just the the incredible extent that he goes to employ logical fallacies such, such as straw man arguments in trying to construct the case for Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone assassin of JFK and of course throwing out many many ad hominem attacks about conspiracy theorists in the meantime so I'll let you go and read that for yourself suffice it to say I think it is a complete and total uh, not not just a, an affront to well uh, thinking and critical people all over all around the world, but to his audience especially, who he is constantly lecturing at not to fall for such rhetorical tricks, and yet he employs them all when it comes to things like JFK, and of course 9/11 and the war on terror. So to get into that this evening, we have a special guest. We have Joshua Blakeney of JoshuaBlakeney.info. He is a freelance journalist, a staff writer at Veterans Today. An activist originally from Surrey in the uh, in the United Kingdom, but he is currently living in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, my hometown. He was the media coordinator of globalization studies at the University of Leth Lethbridge from September 2009 to October 2010, where he received his Bachelor of Arts degree in sociology in April of 2010, and is currently studying for his Master of Arts at uh, the University of Lethbridge. And his research topic is the origins of the global war on terror, academic debates, and interpretive controversies. So, Joshua Blakeney, it is great to have you on the program this evening. Thank you for joining well, it's us. A pleasure, it's a pleasure to be with you, James. And, you know, I just want to start out by thanking you for all your exemplary journalism that you've been doing. And I can tell you, uh, tell your listeners as someone who, who edits uh, movies and makes YouTubes himself that, uh, you know, I can tell that you must have to put in countless hours to produce uh, the repertoire that you have produced in, in recent years. And so it's a, it's a real privilege for me to be on your show and especially one of this new radio show, which I, I wish you all, all success with. 
Well, thank you very much for that, and I really do appreciate that because, uh, as you note, and as I know you know, it does take an incredible amount of work to put into editing videos like that. So, um, so I have learned how to live without sleep more or less over the last few years. But, but on, on that note, of course, you do produce your own uh, videos at your YouTube channel, which I believe is Globalization fourteen ninety two. Yes, that's correct. Uh, in uh, two thousand and six, I enrolled at the University of Lethbridge. Uh, to start my sociology uh, undergraduate degree. And by 2007, I had enrolled in a Professor Anthony J. Hall's uh, Globalization Studies of Lethbridge. And Professor Hall, it was a nascent kind of academic unit, the Globalization Studies unit. Uh, And when I walked in, Professor Hall really had an emphasis that, you know, we're not just watching history or watching this thing called globalization happening, but rather that we should be participating in globalization, that, you know, there's conflicting definitions of globalization and that, you know, we, we often get brandished as anti-globalization, which kind of makes you sound like a Luddite. And he would emphasize, no, we're, we're trying to do people's globalization, you know, offer a different vision of globalization. And part of that was um, using the new media to kind of um, transcend or to overcome geographical uh, barriers that, that, you know, hindered uh, human beings. And Professor Hall, uh, you know, his class, one of the classes he offers is globalization since 1492. And of course, you could kind of look at ships as being the kind of uh, antecedent of, of the Internet. You know, once we got ships and that suddenly the oceans became kind of highways rather than becoming barriers between human interaction. And likewise, the Internet, you know, using it, the fact that you're in Japan, I believe, and I'm in Canada, it's kind of irrelevant because with YouTube and with the new media, we're able to uh, overcome the barriers and, and resist the uh, divide and rule tactics that those in power, of course, require to retain their hegemony. And so uh, I really embraced Professor Hall's Globalization Studies class. I did very well in them and uh, became a media coordinator of Globalization Studies in his classes. And then uh, as my uh, undergraduate degree culminated, uh, he and I uh, came up with the idea, why don't, why don't I stay, stay on at the University of Lethbridge and do a, an MA thesis on the subject of 9-11? Around the time that I met Professor Hall in 2007, he was being prompted by splitting the sky, the Mohawk, activists and, and the individual who attempted to arrest, arrest George W. Bush, which uh, listeners can, of course, see uh, on your latest report on Global Research TV, or your recent report on the event um, in Surrey, D.C. And so Splitting the Sky and Professor Hall had, a, had a, a background going back to Professor Hall's days in Native American studies, and Splitting the Sky had been involved in the Gustafson Lake standoff. Uh, which, of course, was an Indian war that happened in Canada in the early 1990s. Uh, and so um, Professor Hall uh, backed me, basically, trying to um, do a 9-11 truth MA thesis, and things came together. We assembled a committee of professors, and, and it was going very well. And so Professor Hall, when he was uh, sort of coming off the fence on 9-11, he searched uh, far and wide to find an academic who's kind of willing to defend the official story of 9-11, who's willing to actually say, you know, I'll, I'll stand up in front of an audience and, you know, produce some kind of interpretation that defends the official story. And he couldn't find anyone. Um, but Michael Shermer was actually one of the few individuals who he came across who seemingly was uh, perhaps idiotic enough to actually be willing to stand up and defend the official conspiracy theory of 9-11. And so suddenly we found out that on September 23rd, 2010, so I began my MA in May 2010, by September 23rd, Michael Shermer was coming to our university to provide a lecture entitled Why People Believe Weird Things. And one of the most uh, fascinating aspects of this 
from the perspective of Professor, Professor Hall and I was that he was uh, claiming to be affiliated with uh, Claremont Graduate University. Claremont Graduate University is, of course, the institution for the Dean of 9-11 Studies, Professor David Ray Griffin. And so it was quite, it was quite a stark dichotomy to have uh, Michael Shermer on one hand coming to give this kind of uh, pseudo-skeptical uh, interpretation of 9-11 uh, emanating or purporting to emanate from the same academic institution that produced the intellectual titan, David Ray Griffin. And so uh, Professor Hall and I attended the lecture, and it was so uh, academically substandard that Professor Hall and I were, were fitting mad of the lecture. And come the Q&A, we decided, both of us, to stand up and to uh, challenge Michael Shermer. He, he'd, he'd only experienced, unfortunately... And flexion and uh, fawning from well, many of them were academics, uh, unfortunately. Uh, Professor Hall and I stood up and uh, dissented against Michael Shermer and challenged the, his methodology of taking disparate uh, theorists and theories and conflating them under the rubric of conspiracy theorists. Isn't it fascinating that the people who take on the 9-11 community for some reason feel the need to defend the official story of the assassination of JFK as if they didn't have enough on their hands just trying to defend the official story of 9-11, as you said in your intro, so some individuals then feel like, you know, it is the same with Jonathan Cage, who I've been in Canada, who's the editor at the National Post. You know, for some reason, they not only feel a need to take on the truthers, but also take on those, uh, you know, uh, have the audacity to say that, that it wasn't a lone gunman who assassinated. Yes. Uh, yes, you know, and, and once again, I would suggest people go and take a look at that article that I referenced earlier from Huffington Post, because the, the way in which he defends the official JFK story is just so ridiculous on its face, just talking about the, the size of Dealey Plaza and how it's so much smaller than people think. Therefore, it would be easy for Oswald to have done it himself. I mean, just a, a ridiculous, almost a juvenile argument, and uh, and then all of the juvenile name-calling that he engages in in that article which we see, again, reflected in his juvenile name-calling of 9-11 conspiracy theorists and, uh, and making ridiculous straw-man assertions of what they all believe. Well, in the lecture he provided at our university, he actually showed cross-sections of the brain and it tried to imply that it was something to do with uh, one's sort of genetic makeup that, <laughs> that, that implicated one's uh, interpretation of the events of 9-11. I mean, it was almost harkening back to the days of eugenics kind of looked at people's biological makeup to decide whether they were to be accepted in society or to be ostracized. And, of course, this phrase, conspiracy theorist, this kind of goes back to the, you know, the JFK incident because the, the official story was it was a lone gunman, and therefore if you implied that it was then you were a certain place because the conspiracy is two or more people who come together covertly to achieve an illegal end. And so, Which, by the, the way, the JFK, is the official government position on JFK. Of course, the last government word pronouncement on JFK was the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which concluded with 95% probability that JFK was shot by multiple people. So uh, so it was a conspiracy, even by the government's own admissions, and yet we have people like Shermer who, who insist that anyone who says that it's a conspiracy must have something wrong with their brain. Well, indeed, and I mean, of course, the official story of 9-11 posits the conspiracy because it posits that more than one person partook in it, and therefore to use this phrase, you know, oh, they're conspiracy theorists, people who believe Elvis is alive, and people who, who look for UFOs, and, you know, I've never, I, I've never looked for UFOs, I don't know whether UFOs exist, I've never even thought of, you know, asking myself such questions, really, and, and, and likewise, uh, with Jonathan Kay at the National Post, you know, he had this constant 
regurgitation of uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion, you know, so he... It, yes, one of the old canards they love to throw in for anyone who dares to breach these types of subjects or broach them. But uh, on that note, let's hold it there. We'll come back in just a moment after these messages. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. This is your host, James Corbett, coming to you live on republicbroadcasting.org. So once again, thank you for taking the time to join us this evening, where we're joined on the line by our very special guest, Joshua Blakeney of joshuablakeney.info, and discussing skepticality and what it means to be a skeptic in this day and age, especially when it comes to politically sensitive topics like 9-11. So Joshua, continuing from what we were talking about before the break, I think it's interesting to note some of the, the, the straw man arguments that people like Shermer like to throw out when they're quote-unquote refuting 9-11 truth uh, activists. And they love to say that 9-11 truthers say that President Bush committed the entire conspiracy and, and simplify things to that, again, juvenile sophomoric extent in order to knock down that straw man and gloat over the, uh, the remainders of the, the straw man himself. So... What can you say about the types of straw man arguments that people like Shermer employ in this regard? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, when I was when I was editing the the footage of the critique that I, Professor Hall and I were advancing uh, of Michael Shermer, um, I, I was having mischaracterizing his presentation. I'll elaborate on it in a minute. I found one uh, one piece of footage in which he was saying that Bush took the passengers off the plane and personally gassed them. That was the. <laughs> That was the argument of 9-11 skeptics, that George Bush gassed the passengers or something. And so um, evidently, yeah, it's a straw man argument. Uh, if I can just sort of pick up the narrative. So Michael Shermer came, came to our university on September 23rd and stunned and perplexed Professor Hall and I, who then were taking off to Edmonton to meet and greet uh, James Cameron, who was actually coming up to raise issues with the indigenous people. And we were up in Fort McMurray in the Tarzan and, uh, with the hope of uh, interviewing a few of the indigenous leaders who were hosting James Cameron at that time. And Professor Hall and I were, were Googling uh, Michael Shermer and Claremont Graduate University, thinking this is an individual who can't possibly have had to have met the rigors of peer review and so on, and, you know, uh, you know, basically have been able to thrive in an academic environment. This seems impossible. And lo and behold, uh, once we got onto the website, he was purporting to be a professor of economics at Claremont Graduate University, he wasn't on the list of, uh, under the, the Department of Politics and Economics. And so Professor Hall, uh, being a diligent academic, uh, Professor Hall is my MA supervisor, I'll remind your listeners, uh, he emailed a dean, uh, Jean Schrodel, uh, who was the Dean of Politics and Economics at Claremont Graduate University, to ask if Michael Shermer uh, was indeed a professor of economics there. And she responded tersely, stating that she had no idea who this man was. And so then we we uh, went one step higher and uh, sitting in our hotel room in Fort McMurray, uh, kind of uh, gloating over this revelation and wondering how we were going to disseminate this. Uh, we contacted of Claremont Graduate University saying, you know, we, we, we respect your institution. It produced David Ray Griffin. Do you know Michael Shermer? And he said, I don't know who he is too. And after investigating it, turned out he had some ephemeral relationship with, with an accomplice called uh, Professor Paul Zach. Uh, at, at Claremont Graduate University, but that Paul Zach was in a, a different department to the Economics and Politics Department. And so Professor Hall and I started uh, illuminating this and 
saying that our university should offer an apology for having advertised someone as a professor of economics who was in fact not a professor of economics. Obviously, universities ought to take the issue of credentials and individuals mischaracterizing their credentials very seriously. Otherwise, how can students know whether or not they're being taught by a real professor or a pretend professor, as is the case with Michael Shermer. He's a kind of TV professor, I guess, not really a real professor. It turns out this individual, uh, Paul Zach, who he's, he's, he's collaborating with at Claremont Graduate University, he works in a kind of lab, is, is it a psyops lab? We don't know, uh, with a hormone called oxytocin, which is emitted when we're shopping in the shopping mall and enjoying capitalism or indeed during sex. And so he, he actually has an accomplice. He works with a hormone called oxytocin, which Professor Hall and I have speculated might even be the substance we see getting released from chemtrails, you know, this odd, this odd hormone that requires us to be uh, gullible and, and conformist. Um, anyway, that's just speculation. But in the case of Michael Shermer, we then, you know, kicked up a fuss and said that we expected our university to take it seriously, that they told students at our university that they were going to see a professorial and scholarly performance and in fact, they were subjected to a kind of guilt by association, uh, 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 substandard, unscholarly performance. In That's true, and I, I don't want to just leave it there and characterize his performance. I'd, I'd invite l- listeners and uh, people out there to, to check it out for themselves, because once they see the footage, I think they'll see what you're talking about. And again, your YouTube uh, account is youtube.com slash globalization1492, and that's globalization with a Z or a Z for our American brothers and sisters. But uh, do you happen to know the title of that YouTube video right now? I think it's something like uh, uh, Joshua Blakeney and Anthony J. Hall exposed Michael Shermer mischaracterizing his credentials. And there was two YouTubes. One that I posted, uh, there was one that I posted the, the evening after, uh, you know, uh, after we confronted Michael Shermer on September 23rd. And then I, I had a, after the, the revelation that emerged from um, Claire Mugler, I then made a, 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 you know, a more lengthy um, kind of news piece about it. Explain the, you know, I showed examples of Michael's mythology and him speaking, and then contrasted that with David Ray Griffin, and then I explained the reality that he seems to have uh, been mischaracterizing his credentials, as was, of course, evidenced by the fact that he actually deleted of economics on, on all his own biographies. And so our allegations. <laughs> Very were telling. Very telling. Yeah, we were vindicated by Michael Shermer himself, and so. Our university were unabashed. They said they didn't feel that they'd done anything wrong. Interesting. Well, we'll we'll leave it there. We're coming up on a break, so we'll leave it there for for just right now. But if people want to get in on tonight's conversation, it's 1-800-313-9443, 1-800-313-9443, and we can get you in on today's uh, program. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Welcome back, my friends, to Corbett Report Radio. I am your host, James Corbett, and uh, as uh, most of you probably know by now, I am in Japan and, of course, keeping a close eye on the Fukushima situation at FukushimaUpdate.com. And it hasn't been posted to FukushimaUpdate.com yet, but I have some breaking news on the Fukushima disaster. And, unfortunately, it is not good news. From Informable.com, they are now reporting 
Breaking news, Fukushima Daiichi did Unit 2 just blow a hole in the side, and they have some photo analysis there of what looks to be a new hole in Reactor 2. Very, very, very worrying and troubling uh, news. Of course, it hasn't been confirmed yet, so I suggest you go and take a look at that post on informable.com. And um, unfortunately, some, some worse news from Fukushima. But, of course, tonight we are talking about skepticality, and we're talking to Joshua Blakeney of joshuablakeney.info. And if you want to get in on today's conversation about skepticism, you can join us at 1-800-313-9443. But, Joshua, before the break, we were talking about Michael Shermer and his supposed credentials at Claremont Graduate University. Perhaps you can uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you discovered about the supposed adjunct professor of economics, Michael Shermer. Well, of course, if someone can't uh, portray their credentials truthfully and accurately, uh, it does indicate that we should, you know, view their their arguments on matters of politics and history with a great deal of skepticism to take it with a pinch of salt, because if someone can't explain in a truthful way, you know, what position, academic or, or elsewhere, that they occupy, then one does have to, you know, uh, view them uh, in, in a certain light. And, of course, uh, you know, Michael Shermer heads up this magazine, Skeptic Magazine. And so, as you were um, fabulously uh, explaining in your introduction, you know, this word skeptic, like who gets to claim the appellation of being a skeptic and who uh, who's the gullible one? You know, this is the kind of two, ex- two extremes, being gullible or being a pseudo-skeptic and being a skeptic. And I would say that this goes, goes back to, you know, the age of the Enlightenment and the idea that you don't just take, uh, you know, authorities' uh, uh, statements and um, actions on faith, but rather that you challenge those in authority and challenge those in power. And what uh, those such as Michael Shermer and his colleague, uh, you know, someone who cites his work a great deal, Jonathan Kay, I mean, it seems that you have this kind of incestuous relationship with those who take on the truthers where they kind of all cite each other, like Jonathan Kay and Michael Shermer uh, do. You have those uh, individuals uh, taking things on faith, which I think would, would imply that they're actually rejecting the heritage of skepticism, uh, and that it's those of us who actually uh, don't just take the, for example, the interpretation that we were given within hours of 9-11, uh, we don't take that on faith, that we actually challenge those in power to provide us with evidence, scientific evidence, and so on, that we're the ones who are therefore, uh, you know, embracing the heritage of, of skepticism. And so in the case of Michael Shermer, it seems he's heading up an institution that actually teaches people and encourages people to be gullible rather than be skeptical. That, so is it. That, that. that to me is the point of, the, of all of this, because it's not, I'm not here just saying that anyone who, who disagrees with me or who believes that the official story of 9-11 is, is ridiculous or, well, I do think it is a ridiculous story, but, but I'm sure there is some sort of argument to be made from that perspective, but I'm not here to say that that, that disagreement is what's wrong. I'm here to say that Michael Schirmer is being inherently dishonest in the way he's portraying his argument as if he is the holder of this skepticality and he gets to decide what is reasonable and what is just kooky and outrageous and can use all of these smears and convince his audience to take them on board because he is the, the fount of all this knowledge about logical uh, reasoning and everything, which, which, to be fair, he has done a lot of great work on. And if you listen to his uh, talks about, about the logical fallacies and things like that, I think they're spot on. But when you apply them to his own writings on this subject, he fails at his own standards, which to me is the point. It's a dishonest argumentation. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think that he sort of knows what he's doing, which, you know, is, and this is, you know, if you think at Nuremberg, you know, there was uh, intellectuals put on trial who knowingly 
uh, misled the public in order to facilitate genocide. At Nuremberg, there was an individual named Hans Breach who was put on trial, not because he switched on a gas chamber or picked up a gun and killed any Jews or gypsies, but rather he created an intellectual environment conducive to the genocide of those people by defending the Islamophobic official story of 9-11 and attempting to discredit those of us who are exculpating, who are exonerating uh, the accused uh, for 9-11 and the broader Islamic community who have been defamed as a result of the 9-11 false flag operation. Attacking such people, Sherman is actually facilitating uh, genocide, and this is a serious matter, and it implies malfeasance and criminality. And so in the case of Michael Shermer, uh, he came to our university, and when we were challenging him, he was emailing me saying, Oh, you know, if I was an agent of disinformation, you would think that they had given me, they would have given me evidence uh, of my credentials and so on, but I was asking him to prove his, what his credentials are. So he raised the subject of being an agent of disinformation, and you would, of course, if you were in power, you would try to appropriate the uh, epithet skeptic, or, you know, you would start up Skeptic Magazine if you were the CIA or the Mossad, uh, would you not, and, and, and then try and encourage people to be gullible. Sadly, and and, uh, the and, name of and just to put some historical perspective on that, again, that's that's not just uh, just a outright speculation. I mean, we know historically that the CIA has funded uh, people like uh, Miss Magazine and things like that in the past. I mean, the CIA has been directly involved in things like that, which isn't to say that we necessarily even have to go there and, and accuse uh, people like Schirmer of being government agents, but just to say that that possibility is certainly not one to take off the table, especially if we're being skeptical. Well, Senator Frank Church, when he did the Church Committee hearing, discovered that up to 3,000 journalists were collaborating with the CIA and up to 5,000 university professors. And so it, it seems that we live in an environment where if you want to get funding, it seems to me, I mean, I'm concluding that a lot of academics are really just in it for the money and prestige rather than, you know, lofty principles of truth and justice. And if you want to get it, you have to go in power. And intelligence agents invariably work to protect those in power. They're usually working-class people who are co-opted to defend the interests of different factions who own capital. Uh, and I, it does appear that Michael Sherman's been quite successful. He gets on the TV a lot. I mean, I, I'm calling him a TV professor because he, he's kind of like Mythbusters, you know. He does this kind of TV science uh, where it's sort of uh, blurry and, and murky uh, uh, where, where the truth lies. And, and and I think that this is highly damaging. I mean, one thing that I do with my research is obviously in an academic context, you have to, you know, be very specific. And if you're going to address each and every argument, each and every statement, and evaluate its truth value, what Michael Sherman does is the diametric opposite of that. He uh, conflates theorists and theories uh, together and attempts to create he is engaging in something called patternicity, but actually he is doing that because he is trying to create a pattern uh, in which people view those who are skeptical of various government narratives as all being a part of this kind of kooky group that can be showing cross-sections of the brain to, to, to audiences. And this does kind of uh, you know, remind us of the kind of eugenics days where people's biological makeup was used to explain uh, their, you know, their descent in the Soviet Union. Also, you know, this, uh, there was psychiatric wards, um, you know, available for dissidents to be put into when they dissented against 
That's, <laughs> that's exactly right. And, and I've noticed that myself in this whole skeptical community, that that's a tack that they're taking more and more to deal with uh, political uh, topics, is to say that people who believe in them have this have this psychological urge or need to put things into perspective. And we're the pattern-seeking animals, so people are just uh, hardwired for this, and that's why. And coming up with all these psychological reasons, without looking at any of the his- historical uh, analogs for what we're talking about in false flag terrorism that has been documented and proved and now admitted open facts, or looking at any of the specific theories uh, that are being uh, proposed, as you mentioned. And on that note of uh, trying to portray anyone who's a conspiracy theorist as some fruity nut, um, people can look at michaelshermer.com. He had a, 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 a article back in September 2009 that was called Paranoia Strikes Deep. And uh, he starts that, that article, of course, with a little personal jibe at uh, these crazy conspiracy theorists, where he says, after a public lecture in 2005, I was buttonholed by a documentary filmmaker with Michael Moorish ambitions of exposing the conspiracy behind 9-11. You mean the conspiracy by Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda to attack the United States, I asked rhetorically, knowing what was to come. That's what they want you to believe, he said. Who is they, I queried. The government, he whispered, as if they might be listening at that very moment. But didn't Osama and some members of al-Qaeda not only say they did it, I reminded him, they gloated about what a glorious triumph it was? Etc. Etc. So he starts off with this this uh, a, a nameless example of this person who supposedly believes the government did it, and uses that as the straw man, which again, once again, he uses to attack the idea that there's anything beyond 9/11 that we need to investigate. So we see it time and time again, and it is a rhetorical strategy. And I think you're right for pointing out that he knows what he's doing. That to me is what's most disturbing about this. This isn't coming from someone who just doesn't know about the logical fallacies or employing these types of straw man arguments. This is someone who is constructing a straw man argument uh, deliberately, which to me is quite disturbing. Well, indeed, and when we talk about, you know, psychology, like psychology departments in universities get so much funding, you know, so much money. I mean, my university has a huge neuroscience department, and of course what psychology and neuroscience often does, not always, but often does, it does tend to try and uh, put the blame on the individual rather than on the system or on society, you know, to be a kind of, I'm, I, I prescribe to Marx's, you know, analysis of capitalism generally, and I do believe that often uh, people behave in that certain ways because of the way the system molds them. But what, what we see in universities is this huge amount of funding going into psychology because it's very conducive to the kind of capitalist ethos. And uh, a spin-off of this is, of course, diagnosing dissidents as being some, somehow mentally ill. I mean, Jonathan Kay, uh, editor of the National Post, is kind of Canada's version of Michael Shermer, you might say. And he did this in his recent hit piece, Among the Truthers, A Journey Through the Conspiracist Underground of 9-11 Truthers, Birthers, and so on. Now, I'm not underground. I'm, I'm above surface. I can tell everybody. I'm not an underground conspiracist. But it's almost using the kind of uh, language and vocabulary of the kind of, you know, jihadists in caves. In fact, recently, Michael Roth, a former Mossad agent who Jonathan Kay's written a book with, he implied that I was somehow affiliated with al-Qaeda because uh, Hamad Ghul writes for Veterans Today, an individual who I've never spoken to in my life. And so you see this kind of guilt by association, but again, this kind of psychological analysis. In the case of Jonathan Kay, he tried to say, oh, yeah, the reason you get, you know, uh, there's so many middle-aged men who are 9-11 truthers is because they're going through a middle-life crisis or they're academics who've run out of things to, to, to uh, you know, study. But I would say, well, you know, for example, he's engaged is going through a midlife crisis and his wife has left him, which I responded in public and in writing. Suppose for the sake of argument, Richard Gage was going through a midlife crisis. 
What would that have to do with his statement? Someone <laughs> exactly, who's going through a bit like exactly. crisis, someone who's going through a bit like crisis, make a correct statement, right? I mean, exactly going, I mean, someone who's mentally ill could say, oh, look, Building 7 looks like a controlled demolition. They would therefore be mentally ill, but making a correct statement or a, or a truthful statement. And therefore, uh, this, uh, you know, psychological analysis just leads us up a blind alley and it gets us nowhere other than discrediting us and portraying no, us. No, 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 Joshua, uh, quite on the contrary. This is a brand new field of medical study where we can now diagnose people's mental conditions from the, the, the way that they interpret facts that are that are easily documentable. So if you, for example, see the free fall acceleration of WTC7 for 2.25 seconds and say, well, that seems a bit odd, then that means you are a middle-aged man going through a midlife crisis. So now we have this new way of determining your mental status. I mean, this, that, this that was is, sarcastic, uh, this, by the way. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is obviously, in a way, it, it shows that, uh, we've got the facts on our side because our antagonists don't ever address the facts. Jonathan Kay, in his book, Among the Truthers, explicitly says that uh, a, a publicist friend of his says, oh, don't try and address the, the 9-11 truth movement invoked because the book won't sell. And so he even openly says, I'm not really going to address the facts. But, um, he, he, of course, in an incestuous way, cites Michael Shermer in the book, and attempt to... I, one of the fascinating things I found in Jonathan Kay's uh, book, uh, Among the Truthers, was the way that he constantly invoked uh, what might be called uh, Jewish cultural issues or the history of the Holocaust, and associating it with uh, the 9-11 truth movement. Many 9-11 skeptics who didn't associate uh, 9-11 with Israel, for example, I think after reading Jonathan Kay's book and seeing the way that he repeatedly invoked, uh, you know, uh, Zionist issues and so on in the book, in an attempt to discredit those of us who often didn't really talk about Israel, he actually legitimated the, uh, the study of the, the two subjects, or inflating the two subjects, because evidently Israel's fingerprints are all over 9-11. And I think that was the kind of giveaway. I mean, time and time again, the attacks on the 9-11 skeptics community emanate from individuals who are partisan to Israel. In Canada, Jonathan Kay, after I was awarded the Queen Elizabeth II Graduate Scholarship to do my MA thesis, uh, the next day after I got that scholarship, he'd written a hit piece in the National Post, one of Canada's national newspapers, uh, attacking uh, the fact that I'd been awarded this and calling on the taxpayers of Alberta to recognize this gross injustice. This coming from a man who's written a book with a Mossad agent, Michael Ross, former Mossad agent, and who, who is now also attacking me. Uh, in the case of Professor Richard Falk, we saw him being assailed by UN Watch, you know, which exists to apologize for Israel and Professor Hall went to the University of Winnipeg and was mobbed by a group of ladies and had a hit piece done on him in the Jewish Post and News. And so I found one thing fascinating with the attacks on the 9-11 skeptic community. Uh, it, of course, this constant attempt to associate us with anti-Semitism, this constant attempt to portray us as, you know, kind of as crazy as Hitler sort of thing, you know, uh, rather than reasonable and rational people who say, well, why, why were five Mossad agents arrested on 9-11? That's a reasonable question that's irrelevant to... And later released. Know, and were later released, of course, on the uh, direction of Chertoff. And so I think, uh, you know, this is another way, you know, obviously if you're an anti-Semite, if, you, if you're brandished an anti-Semite in our society, it's kind of like your career is over, right? You're, you're, not, you're, you're not really uh, able to assimilate into society anymore. And so this has been one attempt to associate the 9-11 truth movement with anti-Semitism or with Holocaust revisionism and so on, uh, which I think is a deliberate attempt. Uh, because if we're associated with such discredited undertakings, uh, the evidence that we bring forth can be discredited 
and the actions of the Likudnik right and their neoconservative proxies in the United States, like Douglas Weiss and Paul Wolfowitz, both of whom lost their security clearances in the 1980s for passing classified documents to Israel, or Michael Ledeen, who's a credibly accused Mossad agency, kind of orchestrators of the global war on terror, they can be uh, let off the hook if people are deterred from talking about uh, 9-11 and Israeli matters in the same breath. And that's one exactly right. And, and again, I think that goes to the heart of the issue, because again, that's that's a claim, that's a statement of fact that can be debated on the basis of whether it is factually correct or not, and where where that analysis either errs or, or goes uh, goes right. But it, it's, again, they're trying to employ a, a rhetorical label of anti-Semite or whatever in order to frame the entire argument so that people will not look at those facts. And it, it becomes a question of, uh, methinks they they does protest too much. If they don't want us to look at that particular avenue, why is that? And why won't they debate the facts of the matter instead of using these these blanket labels to try to smear everyone? Well, indeed, in the case of Jonathan Kay and his friend Michael Roth, the Mossad agent, you almost couldn't make it up. I mean, the other day I alleged in my university newspaper that Mossad were involved in 9-11, and then the National Post commissioned the Mossad agents to attack me. I mean, like you say, they <laughs> who does protest too much. I mean, you think yes. they could do a, a better job than that, which almost makes Absolutely. you wonder... If, if, they're, if they're actually quite desperate and scraping the barrel of something. Okay, hold it there. We'll be right back right after these messages. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, one and all. And tonight, of course, we have been joined on the line by Joshua Blakeney of joshuablakeney.info. And I should have done this from the very beginning, but that's Joshua, J-O-S-H-U-A, Blakeney, B-L-A-K-E-N-E-Y, dot info. So you can find him there. You can also find him at youtube.com slash globalization with a Z, 1492-1492. So uh, those are the, the main sites, but uh, Joshua, in the final few minutes, anything else that you'd like to, to throw out in terms of websites that you'd like to direct people to or any of the other work that you're working on right now? Well, not really. Just to say that, you know, of course, I was just, I was just thinking about how really a lot of people in the 9-11 skeptic community, they don't really posit any theory because often they're just trying to refute a, a conspiracy theory that was propagated by the government. And so for Michael Shermer and Jonathan Kay and so on to call us, uh, conspiracy theorists is often fallacious because, in fact, we're in the privileged position of disbelieving a government-sponsored conspiracy theory. Some people go to the next step of positing an alternative hypothesis, but others do not. And so I think one thing we should remember when we get called conspiracists and so on, that, you know, it's actually those who are calling us this who are actually conspiracists. And so uh, I think that was just something I would reflect upon for your listeners. Excellent. That's another great point, because really, I mean, it, for things like 9-11, as you point out, every side agrees that it is a conspiracy. It's only what form of conspiracy, and it's kind of ridiculous for the people who have a very definite, uh, or believe they have a very definite understanding of what happened on that day, to call us the conspiracy theorists, when in fact that, I mean, it quite literally is the title that applies to them more so than anyone else. So it is, again, it's just another part of that intellectual dishonesty, which I think frames the entire skeptical, quote-unquote, argument about such political conspiracies and political, um, politically sensitive topics as 9-11 and JFK and, and many other things besides, as we've talked about this evening. So, so once again, a lot to, to reflect on, and I think, I hope, 
Well, I, the, what it comes down to is that I believe that the listeners out there have the, the intellectual capacity and I have the faith in their ability to see through the types of rhetorical tricks and other things that are employed uh, by people like Shermer in trying to get them to just dismiss the idea that there could be anything else going on with something like 9-11. And I think uh, someone like Shermer doesn't have in the faith in the, his own audience to be able to see through his own rhetorical tricks and logical fallacies. So uh, so always keep in mind who respects your intelligence and who is disrespecting you in, in debates like these. So once again, I hope people will check out joshuablakeney.info and see some of your other work. And uh, and just to, in the last couple minutes here, um, tell us a little bit about Surrey, B.C. and the protest about uh, Bush's recent visit to Canada. Well, in Canada, we have the Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act, which, which was passed in 2000 in the Canadian Parliament, and which unambiguously states that those who are, who are credibly suspected of having been involved in crimes against humanity and war crimes if they set foot in Canada, must be apprehended and prosecuted uh, under this legislation. We also have an Immigration and Refugee Protection Act that renders such people inadmissible to Canada. George Bush keeps coming back to Canada. He's a recidivist in this regard. He's a self-confessed torturer and therefore is inadmissible to Canada. <clears throat> is inadmissible to Canada, and if he sets foot in Canada, should be apprehended. This is what lawyers against the war have argued. Even Amnesty International came out on October 12th and stated this as you so marvelously depicted in your recent YouTube, James. And as a result, when George Bush came to Surrey, B.C., we mobilized, not primarily to protest uh, George W. Bush. He's just another, you know, uh, kind of figurehead on this uh, war machine, but rather to pro protest our law enforcement system, our own exactly. law Exactly. That's exactly right. If we can't uphold our own laws and, and hold our, our officials accountable for upholding them, then what do we have left? And unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. But I do suggest people go to YouTube.com slash Globalization1492 to see some of the raw footage of that protest and some of the powerful speaking by splitting the sky at, uh, at that protest. As always, just a great speaker on this subject and many others. So, Joshua Blakeney, that's all the time we have for tonight. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to all of the people out there for listening in tonight, and I'm looking forward to doing it again tomorrow night.